Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got a great guest here today for Spirit in Action. Steve Chase has a long history of doing, teaching, and writing about activism, starting from the age of 13, when he first stood against war. Steve was the founding director of Antioch University's graduate program in Advocacy for Social Justice and Sustainability. He's taught at Pendle Hill Retreat Center, worked at the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, and as Assistant Director of Solidarity 2020 and Beyond. His writings include How Agent Provocateurs Harm Our Movements, and a pamphlet, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, A Quaker Zionist Rethinks Palestinian Rights. He is currently researching a book on Quaker historical perspectives on Israel-Palestine after time spent there this past year. There are a couple choice excerpts of this interview that you can hear on northernspiritradio.org, which we couldn't fit into our 55-minute broadcast version. Steve Chase now joins us via Zoom from Pendle Hill Retreat Center in Wallingford, Pennsylvania. You know, Steve, it's great to have you here, but I'm trying to remember how many times it's been. Welcome. I think this is my seventh time, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Mark. Right now, you are at Pendle Hill Retreat Center, Quaker Retreat Center, you know, 45 miles outside of Philadelphia. What are you doing there? I'm the Henry Canberry Scholar for 2023-24. We'd be doing historical research on the evolution of Quaker perspectives on Israel-Palestine over the last hundred years or so. So did you get a grant or something to free you to be there, or is this just you had enough in your pockets? Well, it's a position where free room and board is provided at Pendle Hill, and then there are three archives close by at Swarthmore, Haverford, and AFSC in Philadelphia, the American Friends Service Committee. So I will be doing research in those archives, and I'll have free room and board here. I did also get a research grant to help with other expenses. I'll probably later in 2024 go to the Friends House in London where they have British Quaker archives because Britain was the mandate government of historic Palestine from, I think, about 1918 till, I think, 47, 1947. So I want to find out what involvement British Quakers have? How did they lobby their government? How did they respond to different things in the British mandate? So it's largely focused on U.S. and British Quakers, but also some focus on Palestinian Quakers. Because of the Ramallah Friends Schools that Quakers started in 1869, there emerged a fairly small but vibrant Friends community, a Ramallah Friends meeting in Palestine. One more thing that I just wanted to put in that broad picture you were just painting, and again, this is Quaker connection with the Middle East. In, I think it was 1947, maybe it was 48, I think that the UN asked Quakers to do relief work there, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, around 48 till about 50, I'd have to go back to my notes to get the exact dates, the UN 
asked the American Friends Service Committee and uh, the equivalent in Britain to do humanitarian relief for the refugees that were expelled from what became Israel. You know, pretty major ethnic cleansing of three quarters of the Palestinian population in what became Israel were pushed into the West Bank, Gaza, and other neighboring countries. And so the AFSC mostly worked in Gaza. And they did that for two years and then ultimately decided since Israel wasn't complying with the UN resolution to allow Palestinian refugees to return to their homes and farms and businesses, which were essentially either destroyed or taken over by the new government with no compensation and just people left as fairly destitute refugees. But When the AFSC realized that the right of return to all these refugees to their homes, that the state of Israel wasn't going to honor that, they said, we don't want to enable that forever and put the charge back onto the UN to figure this out and how to hold the new state of Israel accountable to the right of refugees to return to their homes. So that's a piece that people may not be aware of. I think it's fair to say that historically, Quakers, as a denomination that's derived from Christianity, was generally more supportive of Jews, worked really hard against anti-Semitic actions and beliefs. I don't know if that's a fair thing to say or not. I think that is fair. It doesn't mean that there's not individual Quakers who have sort of imbued cultural anti-Semitism, or I think more precisely anti-Jewish biases or or bigotry, because Semitism actually includes Palestinians. So it's kind of a complex term. I tend to use anti-Jewish bigotry. Now, that being said, for example, because of the relief work that British and U.S. Quakers did after World War One and after World War Two in Germany and, and Europe. But certainly after World War One, a small Quaker community, a German yearly meeting, emerged of Quakers, about 300. And then during the Nazi years, they actually grew a bit, which was hard. And they refused to say Heil Hitler when there was the boycotts against Jewish businesses, which was a Nazi tactic to to deprive people of livelihoods. They went and they made a point of buying in Jewish shops for what they needed. Most other Christian denominations in Germany at the time gave the Nazi party, the Nazi government, lists of their members who had Jewish ancestry, and the German Quakers refused. British Quakers and U.S. Quakers also pushed their governments because they saw what was emerging, and they pushed their governments to end the quota system and allow persecuted Jews to emigrate in mass to their countries. But because of the anti-Semitism in both the U.S. and Britain and an anti-immigrant ethos that we still see today, they were not as successful as they wished they would be. And one of the things that I just found out is that there's another factor, is that certain Zionist groups at that point actually lobbied FDR and Truman 
not to let persecuted Jews into the U.S., and they did the same thing in Britain. And I was very confused. Why would Zionist groups and then David Ben-Gurion, who was a key leader, pre-state leader in Palestine of the Zionist movement and became the first prime minister of Israel, said in 1937, if I could save every German Jewish child in Germany by having them immigrate to Britain, or I could only save half of German Jewish children and have them come to Palestine, I would choose the second. Wow. And here was putting ethno-nationalism ahead of the safety and security of Europe's persecuted Jews during the rise of Nazi power. 37 was before the final solution was fully devised and implemented. But at that point, you could certainly see the handwriting on the wall. We didn't cover all of this detail in the interview I did with you some years back. A Quaker Zionist Rethinks Palestinian Rights was the pamphlet that you wrote. And and you're talking about boycott, divestment, and sanctions kind of work as well. For our listeners who haven't heard that previous interview with Steve Chase, what do you mean you were a Quaker Zionist? You know, I was born in 55. And I had a very powerful experience when I was a young boy. I somewhere heard the word Holocaust. I think I was seven years old. And I went to my mother. I went home and went to my mother and said, what's the Holocaust? And just think of the choice that a mother in a small Illinois town talking to her Gentile kid had. She could tell me the truth and sort of crush my spirit and faith in humanity (laughs) or she could lie. And she found a way to nurture my spirit and also show the deep sinfulness and evil that human beings are capable. So she told me about Germany, a man named Hitler, how his party took over the country, and then started implementing persecution of Jews, and that it ultimately led to the Holocaust, the, quote's final solution, where 11 million people were killed in concentration camps and 6 million of them Jews, because Jews, among many different people, were one of the main targets of Hitler's party. Now, that was crushing to me, and I was taking this all in, But then she started telling me examples of how people in Norway and Denmark who were under military occupation by the Nazis refused to allow their Jewish neighbors to become endangered Danes versus somewhat safer Danes, Gentile Danes. And they worked very hard to protect and smuggle Jews out of the country to safety how they worked to undermine the Nazi occupation, how teacher unions refused to teach the Nazi curriculum and went on strike in various ways that they stood up for justice. So I was oriented as a very young child to have deep sympathy for persecuted people and persecuted Jews and to be against anti-Jewish bigotry. And my mom was never one to sort of not tell me what the moral of her stories were. And she said to me, if I'm ever in a targeted group like the Jews were, I need to reach out for allies 
and I need to fight for freedom, justice, and peace and safety. And if I see other people who are in a targeted group that I'm not, I have the moral imperative to be an ally. This was my upbringing and also in popular discourse that was U.S. political leaders were only really talking about Israel in terms of its Jewish population. And I hadn't heard much about Palestinians when I started hearing about Palestinian criticisms of some of the policies of Israel. I just knee jerk assumed, well, that all just has to be anti-Jewish bigotry. And then it was Jewish friends of mine, pretty politically progressive, started traveling to Israel. And some of them would live there for a year or two. Some of them would visit for shorter times. And they came back very conflicted because they said there's so many wonderful things about Israeli culture and that they loved being there. And there's so many historical roots to their spiritual ancestors emerging in historic Palestine. And so that was meaningful to them. But they saw some dark clouds on the horizon, growing militarism. They would say things like, not all Zionists are racist, but many Zionists are, particularly the settler movement you know, armed, religiously fanatical, and wanting to take over all of historic Palestine and annex the occupied Palestinian territories, and that they were seeing a very rightward drift that we could certainly see, like in January, the most right-wing, openly racist, maximalist, we want to take over as much Palestinian land as possible with as few Palestinians in it. So I've just slowly over time tried to keep my commitment to Jewish liberation and the safety and security of Jews who live in Israel, but also start listening more as well to Palestinian voices that I neglected for so long and seeing that there are really legitimate grievances and human rights concerns and needs for equality and freedom for the Palestinian population And more recently, the international human rights community has done a lot of research. Does this rise to the level of apartheid? Has the military occupation risen to the level of apartheid? And the conclusion after research of human rights group after human rights group is yes, it does. And that made some sense to me, but I had a chance to go with the Quaker delegation this June for three weeks to Israel-Palestine, led by two North Carolina Quakers, Jane and Max Carter. And it was done by the Friends United Meeting and an international association of friends sponsors it every year. And so I was able to go with this small delegation and sort of see for myself. And what I saw, and we talked about it within the delegation, is that we all concluded, yes, This is an impressive system. As former President Obama said, life is pretty intolerable for the Palestinians in the occupied territories, and that it does rise to the level of apartheid. So as a Quaker, I'm saying Jewish Israelis are precious in the sight of God. Palestinian lives are precious in the sight of God. And I don't think there will be any long-term peace in that region until there's real peace with justice. And as an American, 
I feel a special responsibility because the United States since 1948 has given the most military aid to any country in the world, to Israel, that has allowed them to develop and hold on to the military occupation and create an apartheid state and currently committing massive war crimes against 2.3 million civilians in Gaza. As a country, we have been enablers of this unjust system, and we have to figure out a way, a policy that will create peace with justice that's sustainable, is my deep, heartfelt belief. There's so much that you've said already, Steve. And folks, we are talking to Steve Chase today. He's joining us from Pendle Hill Retreat Center, where he's actually doing some research, uh, history of Quaker perspectives on Israel and Palestine. That's going to be coming out, what, next year is your target? I would imagine it may take me longer. I'm very new to historical research, so I'm learning as I go. So I have no idea. That would be lovely if it was that quick. My hunch is it might take me two years to really get it done. Well, who knows what's going to be there in two years is part of my concern, of course. Well, yes, and I'm having a harder time spending time on the book because I feel like I need to do activism. And a lot of my activism has really supported morally and strategically insightful Jewish peace organizations that are emerging, like the Center for Jewish Nonviolence, Jewish Voice for Peace, and If Not Now, who are being hammered by much of the mainstream U.S. Jewish community. Because they have this complex moral thing of they are absolutely against Jewish bigotry. They're horrified and suffering from the October 7th attack that Hamas did in southern Israel. You know, I actually know people in those groups who are related to some of the hostages or had people who were killed on the kibbutz or the music festival. And so they're holding that. But they also believe that Israel has oppressive policies towards Palestinians that need to be removed and create real equality. And they're demanding a ceasefire, the release of the captives and the restoration of adequate humanitarian aid for Gaza. And they're speaking from the peace and justice perspective of prophetic Judaism. You know, my sense is they're providing stellar moral leadership in this country. As a Christian peace and justice activist, I really want to have their backs while they do that. And hopefully we can talk about what happened to me when I went and gave a talk about the trip in June to the Montclair Public Library that was sponsored by, I think, about eight organizations, but one of them was Jewish Voice for Peace. And a segment of the town tried everything they could to defame Jewish Voice for Peace and singled them out, didn't talk about the other groups, compared me to Hitler coming to speak at a public institution. And, you know, I was canceled once a Unitarian church in town was pressured to stop me from speaking on October 22nd. Then the library agreed that I could speak on November 12th. Then people put a petition to the library board to refuse to let me speak. And then during a public hearing, emergency meeting on Saturday night before the Sunday afternoon I was to talk, there was a two-hour public comment period that the library board ran. And there were many people speaking up for free speech. 
the local Montclair, New Jersey Quakers said that they knew me. They had read some of my work. What was being said about me wasn't true. There were a lot of people that defended the wider co-sponsors, but defended Jewish Voice for Peace from really scurrilous attacks. Some of the people were saying Jewish Voice for Peace is a hate group. It is run by Iran. Its leadership and its membership aren't really Jews, and that they celebrated the Hamas attack, that they are pro-terrorist. All of these are horrendous lies. Luckily, the board gave me a few minutes to speak because it was a public meeting on Zoom. I spent a couple minutes just saying, I'm pro-Palestinian people, I'm pro-Israeli people, I am pro-peace, and I'm pro-human rights. And that what I'm going to talk about is there's no long-term security for anyone unless there's peace with justice. And then people were shouting that I was anti-Semitic for saying that. So it was very, very harsh. I was able to speak. It was disrupted by a small group of people yelling and shouting at me about 20 minutes in. I had to be escorted by the police to my car because they feared that I would be attacked afterwards. This is just one small example of a wider pattern that's happening in the U.S., that's happening in Europe, and is happening in Israel, suppressing peace and justice activists from being able to speak freely. And there's a very good progressive Jewish magazine called Jewish Currents. And they've published some great reporting about how people who believe that Palestinians are also people deserving of human rights and should have equality and freedom, including Jewish peace and justice groups, are being wildly suppressed in an organized and somewhat fanatical way where people are just saying wild, wild things against them. I just saw that firsthand, and it made my heart break, made me fear for the quality of our democracy and debate and discerning what would make sense for U.S. policy in these perilous times and the potential threat of political violence, both against Jews, which we're seeing a rise in hate crimes, and Arab Americans. But we have to really claim the space. And I became so deeply committed to the courage of these Jewish peace and justice groups and really feeling like we have to listen carefully to them. We have to work with them on their creative demonstrations using nonviolent action and stand up and speak up for them when they're being slandered. And my friends meeting actually does a good job with that friends meeting of Washington. We have a pretty big campus and we rent space. So we have a Jewish minion that we're DC minion that worships with us every week. They're actually a larger congregation than our Quaker meeting is. We have worked with Jewish Voice for Peace on educational programs collaboratively for at least five years. We provided planning space for If Not Now to plan their demonstrations in Washington, D.C. We've opened up our space for Palestinian human rights activists and their allies to do planning. And we are trying to hold the space of loving everyone 
and pushing for justice for everyone and hoping we can end mass murder, siege, and displacement. And I think the U.S. government has a lot of leverage in this situation, and it's really using it poorly right now. So our meeting is trying to discern how we can be the most useful in this perilous time. Again, Steve, there's so much that you're covering that I want to go into in more depth. Let me just take one little piece here. You know, Steve Chase may know what a Jewish minion is, and I do too. Folks, perhaps in general, who are not Jews may not know that a minion is a body of Jews that come together. You have to have at least 10, some circles, it's 10 Jewish males before you can have an official congregation meeting. Yeah, the Minion in D.C. has men and women in leadership. They don't actually have a rabbi, so it's led by lay people. It is a vibrant community. I love it when the children are running around our meeting house. But yeah, so it's a, it's sort of a less formal congregation than, say, a synagogue that has a rabbi. And yet that's how a number of Jews have organized themselves for worship and service and community and embracing the prophetic Jewish tradition and Jewish ethics for peace and justice. Another term that I want to make sure people are clear on, you already mentioned this, about anti-Semitism versus anti-Jew. Now, you were accused of being anti-Semitic. By the way, does the word Semitic, is that out of the same basis in basis as the Good Samaritan? Is it that the same sem in there? I, I would have to do more research to say my understanding is that Semitic people people from this region. And there may be more nuances to it that I haven't got to yet. But Palestinians are a Semitic people. Jews who have both historical and cultural and spiritual ties to the land, you know, even from the diaspora, they're Semitic people. Because of that, it's confusing. And that's why I prefer the term anti-Jewish bigotry or anti-Arab bigotry. And, you know, I believe we should oppose both. And we are talking about danger to Jews, to Palestinians, to world peace, to our nations working together, partnership, and loving one another, which is a deep drive, both for my guests, Steve Chase, myself, and so many other people who I call my dearest friends. You are listening to Spirit in Action, our website, Northern Spirit Radio. That's three words, Northern Spirit Radio. If you only got two of them, you won't get the website, northernspiritradio.org, where we've had Steve Chase on. His memory is better than mine because he's a year younger than I am. He remembers this is maybe our seventh time that I've interviewed him over the 18 years that Northern Spirit Radio has been working, that both Spirit in Action programs and Song of the Soul programs. You can find them all out on our website. Please post comments when you do and donate to help us keep going. We are sustainable because you help us be sustainable. We don't take money from government or from corporations. That's very important to us because we want to have our independence. We want to serve our listeners, not any agenda that might be foisted upon us. And this is key also in terms of how the politics in the Middle East go. I want to make sure people know that. But again, come to NorthernSpiritRadio.org. See the 35 plus stations across the country that are carrying our program. 
programs, make sure you support those community radio stations as well, because these are alternative views that don't get out to everyone. It doesn't serve everybody's agenda to have a fair and balanced discussion of issues, listening deeply to both sides, caring for all people. Some people run right off portions of the world's population as not worth caring about. And that is exactly opposed to what both Steve and I believe. Again, come via our site and track down and do all those things and make sure when you post us a comment, you can give us ideas who we should be talking to. Steve contacted me just this past week telling his experience with speaking. And I want to ask you for more questions about what happened when you spoke. Montclair Friends Meeting is, I think, the ones who invited you to the area or was it someone else? No, no. It was Pax Christi, a Catholic peace group. Friends Committee on National Legislation Advocacy Team in New York, Veterans for Peace. There were some other groups. The main organizer was Jewish Voice for Peace and kind of brought the other groups together. They had one of their members had seen a talk about the Quaker delegation to Israel Palestine that I did in July. It was a Zoom presentation that I did for the D.C. Metro chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. They asked me to speak. And so this was set long before October 7th. We finalized things in August and they rented uh, the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Montclair's space for October 22nd. One of the ministers there contacted the group two days before I was to speak and said they're unilaterally canceling the rental contract they had. And they said, we have a moral obligation to only rent to people who have values and missions aligned with the peace and justice principles of Unitarian Universalists. And obviously, Jewish Voice for Peace doesn't meet that criteria which is, I think, very ill-informed. So they were looking around for other space, the organizers of my talk, and they went to the public library, and the public library agreed. I find it so hard to believe that about Unitarian Universalists. Well, it's not all Unitarian Universalists. It's, it's the leadership of this one congregation. The Unitarian Universalists have actually been quite good for many years on this issue. There's a national sort of committee within UUs in the United States called Unitarian Universalists for Justice in the Middle East. But the church in Montclair was under really significant pressure by some segments of the community. Because I talked to Reverend Scott, one of the co-pastors of the UU church, and he said that he's gone to Israel and Palestine, and he agrees it's an apartheid state, and that at a church that he was at before he came to Montclair would even preach sermons about it's apartheid and we need peace with justice. But he didn't know much about Jewish Voice for Peace, and people were telling him all sorts of horrible, false things about it being a hate group. So the board of that congregation directed him to cancel all relationships. 
I then had pretty long dialogues. We did an hour-long Zoom meeting. We sent emails. And they had agreed in principle to reschedule the talk and try to make amends to Jewish Voice for Peace. And they reached out and talked to them. They got some advice from the president of Unitarian Universalists for Justice in the Mideast about they kind of made a mistake here and, and they should make amends. So when we offered various dates for it to be rescheduled at the church, at first they were saying the two dates we offered were impossible logistically because of other things going on in the church, and that made sense. So the organizers of the talk and I talked about scheduling, and we offered them about 10 more dates in the evening on weeknights that might be easier than Sunday afternoon. And we didn't hear back for a couple of days. And when we finally heard back, what we heard from Reverend Scott was that the board was still unwilling to stop its discriminatory policy against Jewish Voice for Peace. And that's when the co-sponsors of the event went to the public library. And so it's really sad. They're really good folks. I talked to both of the reverends of that congregation I have a lot of admiration for them. They do care deeply about justice. They have histories in community organizing. But I think they were ill-informed and deeply pressured, and they admitted they made mistakes. They apologized, but at the last minute, their board wouldn't allow them to make amends. They're hoping that might change in a month or two, so we'll see. But it was a tough situation with that congregation. I wanted to drill down a little bit, Steve, about this tendency, and I, it happens everywhere, to conflate opposing a policy with being anti the nation or anti the group. I remember, you know, because during Vietnam War, people who opposed the U.S. participation in the war where we went to Vietnam and were supporting government that was doing really bad things, the phrase that was tossed out was, America, love it or leave it. If you don't like this policy, you must be anti-America, whereas I think my perspective is the people who want to make their nation be the best nation it can be are really pro-nation. Yeah, it's like Martin Luther King. His goal was to renew the nation and have America become a beloved community. And he worked so beautifully for that. And the civil rights movement growing out of the Black church in the South made some of the most remarkable contributions to multiracial democracy and building community solidarity. I was so inspired as a child by. And then when King came out against the war in Vietnam on April 4th, 1967, at the Riverside Church in New York, newspapers that had lauded him in the past, like New York Times or the Washington Post, turned against him and said horrible things about him. But I think a democracy has to include divergent opinions, dialogue, thinking through what is best public policy. And I think there's serious questions. Like one of the quotes that I use in the presentations I'm doing about reflecting on the trip, the Quaker delegation that I went on to in June, led by Max and Jane Carter, is a quote from Moshe Dayan, who became the Minister of Defense for the State of Israel in 1967, just days before Israel 
did the sticks stay war and military occupied all the remaining parts of historic Palestine, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza. And he served in that role till 74 and then went on and was in the Knesset and served other leadership roles in different Israeli governments. But he said rhetorically in 67, after the occupation, he was giving some speech and he rhetorically was using Palestinians as his audience. And the quote, I think, gets at the heart of some of the root causes of the problem and why we need a just peace. But he said to the Palestinians, we have no solution for you. You can choose to live as dogs for the rest of your lives, or you can leave. We will see what develops. And we've been seeing what develops ever since The U.S. government has enabled what has developed ever since. And I just believe we need to do better and that people of goodwill need to come together and say principles like human rights, equality, peace, justice, and security for all who live between the river and the sea are our true north principles, rather than just take one side of one armed, nasty, ethno-nationalist grouping, say Hamas, or an example of the current government in Israel, which is the most far-right, openly racist, and wanting to take over. It's in its explicit program and policy, annexing most of the West Bank. There has been talk within the current Israeli government. There's a 14-page report that the Israeli Daily Newspaper reported on that was leaked from an intelligence service that was proposing to the current government that the goal in Gaza should be to ethnically cleanse all 2.3 million people, push them into Egypt, and never allow them to return home. And these are people who are already 70% of the families were kicked out of their homes in what became Israel and ended up as refugees in Gaza. And now there's going to be a second, you know, and this isn't formal policy yet, but it's on the horizon of what could be happening in the future. There are people within the current government of Israel that are talking about this And the U.S. government, the Biden administration has said there are no red lines in terms of what Israel does. We want to give them 14 million extra dollars on top of the 3.8 million dollars we give them every year for military aid. And we're becoming complicit in ethnic cleansing, in mass murder. And the Center of Constitutional Rights just is representing a group of Palestinian human rights organizations that are suing President Biden and his administration for being complicit in the violation of international law around genocide. And so these are very serious issues. Folks for Spirit in Action today, we're talking with Steve Chase. He's published a lot. He's spoken and written a lot. And I'll have links to that on northernspiritradio.org. So just come to the site and I'll point you in the right direction. It's both about his personal production on this particular issue, but also to some general good sources that you can go to for more of the details. So on northernspiritradio.org, you'll find the connection. 
I want to talk a little bit about the moral issues involved here. And let me say a few words about this. There is no doubt in, I think, really anybody's mind, well, maybe except some people from Hamas, that the attack, more than 1,000, 1,300 people killed, how many are... I think the Israeli government revised it down to 1,200 killed and 240 kidnapped and taken to Gaza. Right. And there is no question, but that was horrific, horrible, heart-rending, and, and I wouldn't say but, I would say and, that does not make disappear the damage that's happening to Palestinians. I have two pieces about this that I want to mention. Number one, some of us know Jesus as having been quoted to say that you've heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, you know, and this is where he goes in talking about turn the other cheek and this kind of thing. What my friend Eli, who has been one of my closest friends for the last 30 plus years here in Eau Claire, What he said is that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth dictum from the Jewish scriptures was to say, you don't take more than an eye for an eye. Your limit is an equal payback. When you have retribution, if someone hurts you, you're allowed to hurt back, but not more than what they damaged you. Now, he told me that is what the Jewish writings say about it. It's one Jewish perspective. There are others. It's what he told me in this case. Mm -hmm. The retaliation that's going on in Palestine is far disproportional. Now, I don't know exactly what the up-to-date numbers are, but it's at least several times greater than what was damaged in Israel. And I think it's always important that we distinguish between understanding something and supporting it. And I can certainly understand the disproportionate anger, the the fact that you've killed my family, you've killed my children, you've damaged my home. I'm going to get you. I'm going to wipe you out. That is not at all foreign to the emotions that happen in my chest. Not that I do it. Of course, I'm a Quaker pacifist, and I actually believe in turning the other cheek. And I've actually practiced that in my life where I've been beat, and I just can stand there and turn the other cheek. So I understand the feeling, but that isn't the same as supporting, justifying it, or supporting it, as you said, enabling it, as our government does with our funds. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about the Jewish perspective on this retaliation. Theoretically, they're trying to wipe out Hamas, who is an agent who is openly antagonistic, hateful towards Israel. I hope that's not misstating the facts. But I guess if you don't see the other people as people. Yes, I would say it's too big a generalization to say that Jewish ethics demands proportionate vengeance because the underlying principles of the Jewish prophetic tradition really is speaking to beloved community, to justice between people. Micah 8, the prophet Micah in the Hebrew scriptures says so beautifully, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to practice compassion, and walk humbly with your God. You know, so I'm not sure I agree with you that it's a monolithic view of we've got to hurt people. I do think Israel has a right to defend itself. Israel is one of the strongest military powers in the world. Hamas is not. But 
It clearly is a threat. So I personally have no objection to the Iron Dome missile defense system. That's a way to defend people from rockets that come out of Gaza without damaging or killing or harming Gazan civilians. I also think it was totally legitimate for the state of Israel to have soldiers stop the carnage where they could and push the military operatives from Hamas back into Gaza. Those are all defensive things. And the sad thing that is well known in Israel and has a lot of people angry at Netanyahu is that Netanyahu's government removed 31 battalions of Israeli IDF soldiers and redeployed them before this all happened on October 7th to the West Bank to defend violent settlers that were doing pogroms, wiping out and terrorizing Palestinian villages and towns in the West Bank. And so they were unprepared to defend themselves on October 7th. That's why there was so much vulnerability. Had they not redeployed those troops away from the border, there would have been much less impact on the horrible attack that Hamas did. Then the strategic question, if you're looking for security, is how do you undermine the sources of power and popular support, which according to public opinion polling, 80% of Palestinians do not support Hamas. At most, 20% do. That's potential good news. And so how do you deal with the Palestinians to further marginalize and lower the support for a group like Hamas. Is it displacing a million Palestinian citizens in Gaza? Is it blowing up their homes? Is it killing close to 5,000 children to have about 2,000 people under rubble who are missing to stop the flow of water, food, medicine, fuel, and electricity to move people to the south and then bomb them in the south of Gaza. 30% of the people who have died in Gaza since October 7th were in the south, which is supposedly the safe zone. I don't believe that people so traumatized They're going to want vengeance in the same way that there's a vengeful spirit going on in Israel because of the heartbreak and the misery of losing all those precious people on October 7th and having 240 captives taken and are worried about that. So the question is both moral, but it's also strategic. I think the current course of U.S. policy and Israeli policy is going to undermine the safety and security long term of Israel. And it's going to have horrendous, it's already had horrendous impact on innocent civilians. A lot of the focus is on Gaza But violent settlers are attacking West Bank villages. There have been, I think, over 120 Palestinians in the West Bank killed since October 7th, some by the IDF, Israeli, quotes defense forces, though they're a military occupying power in occupied Palestine, and violent religious fanatic extremists in the settler movement. 
the Ramallah Friends School, where we were based at during our trip in June, they have had to go all online since early October because they have people coming into the school. They have, I think, 1,600 students from kindergarten through high school. And they've had to go all online because it is not safe for people to drive from occupied East Jerusalem to Ramallah. It is not safe for people to come from the cities and towns and villages around Ramallah because settlers are being snipers and shooting at cars that go by on the Palestinian roads. And there's segregated roads. There's Jewish protected roads. And then there's the unprotected Palestinian roads. So this is just a terrible way, morally, but strategically, it's a terrible way if your goal is actually to preserve the security of Israeli civilians. And if you want a long-term peace, you're going to have to do it with justice. They just have to change these policies, and the U.S. has to be helping them do that. That's where I think that U.S. people of goodwill need to put their shoulders to the wheel. It was probably 10 or 15 years ago that I saw there was a Muslim, Jewish, and Christian comedian. They were traveling together, and they took turns on stage. I went and saw them, and they did their shtick, which I guess means I'm tilting towards the Jews right there by using a word like shtick. But they did their presentations, and afterwards, they had a few serious things to say because they were obviously trying to lessen tensions between groups. And actually, the Muslims and Jews that I know here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, they get along pretty well. They understand each other. They communicate usually pretty well. That's my local experience. Well, anyway, after this, the Muslim comedian said some very serious things. And one of them he said, which has settled deep in my heart, he says, terrorism is the war of the poor disadvantaged, the weak people, right? And war is the terrorism of the rich, the privileged, those who have power. That makes a tremendous amount of sense to hold them to the same standards. It's an equity question, right? Someone has a big military, all the weapons, and the other ones who have but nothing but stones to throw, they're working from a different basis. And that, that does not justify terrorism, but I don't believe in war. So, I mean, I don't see either side as being justified. It's very asymmetrical in terms of the power relationships, for sure. Right. But to label terrorism as bad, but war is okay, that's where I think we go wrong. Yeah, and that's why I used the phrase that Hamas on October 7th engaged in mass murder, and they killed at least 1,200 people and captured others. Horrendous. The response has been a massive attack against 2.3 million people, most of whom, you know, like 98% weren't involved in the October 7th attack. You know, with the siege, the bombardment, the pushing a million people to the south from Gaza City, that's mass murder, too, and a much larger scale. Neither is moving us forward, so we have to find a different path. We went and we talked with a village, a Palestinian village priest of the Greek Orthodox Church, and it was just this tiny chapel in this little village 
And we sat with him and he talked about his perspective because a lot of times people don't even realize that there's a long-term Palestinian Christian community. You know, they just think it's only Muslim. Um, So we're with him. And he says this beautiful thing that kind of reminds me of the three comedians. He said, it doesn't matter if your name is Moshi, Mohammed, or Matthew. All are precious in the eyes of God. And all deserve to live lives of peace, security, freedom, and justice. And I'm going, amen. We also talked in Ramallah with an imam at a mosque and we worship it was my first time worshiping in a mosque and it was it was a meaningful and, and beautiful thing for me and it was sort of expanding my interfaith experience but we had a long time before the worship service about an hour to talk with the imam and he said something fascinating he said most palestinians don't mind having jews as neighbors we only object to them being our masters And so if the state of Israel can figure out a way to become neighbors and not masters to Palestinians in the occupied territories, I think that there is a real hope for real freedom, real equality, and human rights from all between the river and the sea. I've got to let you go. But folks, I'll have links to Steve Chase and some of his writings. I hope you want to get a hold of him and maybe have him speak to your group and locally. I think, Steve, you're still brave enough to go out and face this, even as people are shouting you down. Yeah, and actually, because of all the controversy in Montclair, and it's sort of spreading around the country, I was asked to speak in an interfaith group in Los Angeles. That That's coming up. I'm speaking this Sunday on a Zoom call organized by the San Francisco Friends meeting. I'm going to be on panel discussions. You know, I have to find time to write this book and I need time to do the on the ground activism for peace with justice. But I also think this kind of dialogue is important. So I do want to make myself available to people if they want me to come speak. Well, I appreciate you offering yourself here today so that we could speak about this really gripping, heart-rending experience that we've got going right now and to help channel some kind of a vision for the future. That's one of the things that sometimes gets lost in it. People get caught in their hatreds of days gone by or what happened yesterday and they don't consider what's going to happen tomorrow. I see you as working for a world where everyone can be safe and loved as we need to be. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me for Spirit in Action today, Steve. Thank you so much, Mark. I love being with you. And again, I've got links to Steve Chase and a couple other organizations, his books on northernspiritradio.org. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.